This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The veto pen is one of the most powerful tools a governor has, and Colorado's governor, Democrat John Hickenlooper, has already used it this year to kill a bill that would have banned red light cameras. And he may use it again, as we hear in our regular conversation at the state capitol. The governor spoke with Ryan Warner. Governor, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back. I want to get first to the question of wine and beer sales in grocery stores. You are facing a deadline Friday to make a decision about a veto or whether to sign this bill. Grocery store chains say consumers want to buy alcohol from them. Independent liquor stores say it could put them out of business. The legislature passed this bill that would phase grocery sales in over 20 years. You have expressed skepticism. What is it going to be? Well, I'm still agonizing on it. It's you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, as my mother used to say to us sometimes. Run uh, through that with me. How are you damned if you sign and damned if you veto? Well, here's a government action that's actually going to allow a dramatic change in our system that is going to have a, a negative impact on many hundreds of small liquor store owners. So they claim. So they claim, and I don't think anyone argues it. It would take a significant amount of their business for the convenience, you know, they wouldn't get it back. So action of government taking some value of someone's business and transferring it to other larger businesses for the sake of customer convenience is a difficult balance, right? uh, We've always moved towards open markets. Uh, This is a remnant from prohibition that only liquor stores and, and certain drug stores can sell liquor. And if you veto, what are what's what, damned if you don't, I guess? If, if I veto it, it means I have to be very confident that we can have a special session and get a better compromise that is more balanced or more fair. Is it automatic that a veto of that bill would come with a special session? And is that part of the discussion? Yes, exactly. And when I talk to people around the state, that's exactly how I frame it. Uh, if I were to veto this, Here's the kinds of things I think that might result if I called a special session that we might get to. Because there's a ballot issue looming on the question of grocery store sales as well. Exactly. A special session this year? Oh, yeah. It would have to happen this year because I think the supermarkets are quite serious. They have been out gathering petition signatures. So they would have a ballot initiative that would, starting immediately, give them full access to beer and wine sales. That would have a dramatic negative effect on the value of small liquor store, how much their property is worth. The idea there of no phase-in period. Special sessions have to be one topic, don't they? In other words, if you declare that the topic, that's what you're asking lawmakers to discuss. No, actually, you can have multiple topics. The governor has to specify exactly what the topics are going to be, and you can't bring up added issues. But yes, I, I can have, and have in the past... Uh, had multiple topics. All right. Well, that leads uh, nicely to another question related to a special session. You're so good on these segues. Um, You could also address a budgetary maneuver that Democrats couldn't get done in the regular session. This has to do with something called the hospital provider fee. And you say that this move would free up money for roads and education. You told us last month that to call a special session, you'd have to see some glimmer of hope that a compromise could be reached. Where does that stand? Well, I think that there are the forces of various special interests are already at work, and there's a lot of pressure on the Republicans not to give into a special session. That's about where it stood when we talked to you last. That's exactly right. And there's been a great deal of pressure from all kinds, I mean, almost every chamber of commerce, every business group, the road building uh, associations, 
all of the the people that are trying to move the state forward, I, I would argue, really want to have a special session because they're hopeful that we can, you know, figure out some sort of compromise that makes it a a win-win on both sides. And, you know, I'm sending either text messages or talking to somebody pretty much every day and have been for the last two weeks. What would you put the odds on a special session at today? 50-50, I think. It's a pretty steep hill to climb. You have pressure from conservatives not to call a special session. Uh, some saying, for instance, at Americans for Prosperity, that it would be a, an unwise use of state dollars to bring lawmakers back. Is that floating around in your mind as well as you make a decision? Well, I certainly don't want to waste a penny of taxpayer money unless I feel that we have a very good chance of getting to a, a constructive outcome. But, you know, if it costs, let's say, $60,000 to do a special session to, you know, pay for all the the overhead and getting the legislature back into session, that's a lot of money, but it's a small amount if it frees up $4 billion or $5 billion in, in revenue, and we can actually begin to solve some of this traffic congestion that we're seeing, you know, especially around places like Fort Collins and between Colorado Springs and Denver, uh, up around Monument. We really are having a, a toxic you know, congestion issue around our traffic. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Colorado's Democratic Governor, John Hickenlooper. Earlier this week, your state division of insurance announced health care costs are likely to rise and coverage options may be cut in 2017. This report says four companies are dropping out of the Colorado market or cutting back on individual plans. This is coverage for folks who aren't insured through their employers. Let's be clear. Uh, That market has been a bit more steady. What do you make of this? Rate hikes that range from 10 to 35 percent that presumably the Affordable Care Act was supposed to, uh, you know, make more affordable. Uh, Last year, the rate hikes weren't anything like this. They were much smaller. And these are insurance companies that lost money this last year. And you're seeing this in pretty much every state across the country. And it is, a, I think, a valid issue that we have to address as a, as a country. How do we stop this runaway uh, growth of, of health care? But wasn't like, Obamacare supposed to be the solution? Well, why, why does the question still need to be asked? Because obviously there is, is work still to be done. I think expanding coverage, we've made great progress. Now we have doctors and hospitals using digital platforms and able to keep uh, data. But the usage of that information and really implementing systems to restrain the growth of healthcare costs, I mean, these are big bureaucracies. I think everyone I know agrees we've got to get our arms around this. It's been going on for 30 years where individuals are getting plans. They were getting the short end of the stick before Obamacare. I mean, they were having, in many cases, they couldn't get healthcare. In a number of cases, these are people that had pre-existing conditions. So is, is the message to people just wait a little longer and Obamacare will sort of continue rolling out and the market will stabilize? I mean, these are some big, sophisticated companies, these insurance companies. I mean, is it that they can't figure it out, that there's something fundamentally wrong with the system? Well, they clearly made a mistake, right? In other words, what you're seeing when they're raising their prices so dramatically is that they had gauged their prices a year ago uh, far too low. And instead of having whatever was 6% increases, they probably should have had 15% or 14% increases. Part of the real goal is to look at the whole spend in healthcare and say, small businesses, how are they doing? And large businesses and their healthcare plans, are their increases as much as they were in the past? I want you to talk to a voter who might make a decision in November on a Senate race or the presidential race with healthcare in mind. 
they see these increases and they think, I'm, I'm not so sure about this Obamacare. It might be good to try something new. What would you tell them? Well, I think if you want to try something new, which is to say throw out the old, start from ground zero with something completely new, I think that's a highly risky endeavor. But we are looking at constantly, and I think all of us have to look at, how do we find a way to control the inflation in, in health care costs? You have announced your support for a proposed ballot measure requiring that amendments to the state constitution be approved by 55% of the popular vote up from the current 50%. You know, a 50% majority has been pretty much the standard in this country for 200 plus years. Uh, we did a little research. Wait, 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 wait. But for, just for the record, mm-hmm. the U.S. Constitution is not a 50%. I mean, you've got a supermajority. Supermajority. We did a little research, and here are some of the initiatives from the last several years that would not have passed if the 55% threshold had been in place. Two of them are big drivers of the budget Tabor, which sets limits on state taxes and spending, and Amendment 23, requiring annual increases for K 12 education. This is interesting. Medical marijuana would have failed. Recreational would have passed. And a property tax exemption for senior citizens would have been defeated because of that 55% threshold were it in place. What do you think of that? Well, I think that Tabor still would have passed. It might not have passed on that specific ballot. But if you look at the ballot before, it got 46%. Before that, it got 39%. So it was going in a positive direction. They would have had to wait longer. I think it takes these constitutional changes out from the flavor of the moment. If they're truly something that belongs in the Constitution, they will eventually get there. And you don't think the 55% is such a hike as to make it, oh, I don't know, impossible for the little guy to get a a measure into the state Constitution? If the the little guy's got the right idea, again, Tabor's the perfect example. Uh, That was an idea by a small group of people that really felt this would be a, a constructive thing to the state. There are a number of people that think the threshold should be 60%. You're not with them? I think 55% is, I think that's a a threshold that's difficult to get to, but it's not impossible. To Tabor, and another idea that is floating around, which is a Tabor timeout, essentially allowing the state to keep future refunds to taxpayers and use that money for any number of things, education, transportation, maybe mental health programs. Uh, there's a measure potentially headed for the ballot that would do this. Yes or no, do you support that idea? Uh, I haven't seen the final language of it, but I think if, certainly if we're unable to get the hospital provider fee done... In a special session. In a special session, then we would have to look for... I mean, we've got to address our roads, right? The, the traffic, everyone wants to address it, they're just not sure how. We asked our listeners to suggest questions for you, and we got one from Bill Menezes. He's a local progressive activist, and here's what he asked. Governor, in your book you wrote the following, quote, Based on experience in science, I recognized fracking was one of our very best and safest extraction techniques. Fracking is good for the country's energy supply, our national security, our economy, and our environment, end quote. Governor, there's a difference between stating something is perhaps not as bad for the environment as an alternative energy source versus, say, open pit coal mining or nuclear waste disposal, and claiming something is, quote, good for the environment. Please explain how fracking is good for our environment. Uh, Fracking allows you to harvest natural gas at a low enough cost so you can replace coal 
in the generation of electricity all over the country. And that in real time is dramatically cleaning up our air and reducing our greenhouse gas emissions in a, in a way that we could not possibly do using solar or wind without some more time for those technologies to lower their costs. Some would argue that fracking allows you to access gas that was not accessible before fracking technology developed uh, further. And that, in a way, it's prolonging, I think critics would say, an addiction to fossil fuels. Well, I don't think we have an addiction. I think most of us have recognized that climate change is real and it's happening, and we have to dramatically reduce the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that we're making. But natural gas at an affordable cost allows us to do that without disrupting you know, whole sectors of our economy. I mean, if you're really talking about trying to immediately clean up the air and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, I'm not sure how else you do it without natural gas. And yet that's on a global scale. And there are people on a very local scale who look at fracking and say, this is doing anything but cleaning up my environment. Well, I, I disagree. I mean, we're closing coal plants in Colorado, closing coal plants in, in all, all sorts of Western states. Meanwhile, drilling operations are popping up. Drilling operations to provide the natural gas that allows to close those coal operations. In we're, someone's backyard, though, I'm saying they're very local environment. No, no, of course, but I think that's our challenge. What we've done in Colorado is we've raised the fine, so if someone spills water or crude oil or frack fluids onto the ground or into the stream, the maximum fine in the old days was 500 bucks a day. Now it's $15,000 a day. We're the first state to go out and actually force the oil and gas industry to go out and measure uh, fugitive emissions, right? Methane that's escaping, and make sure that doesn't happen. Governor, thanks for being with us. Sure, always a pleasure. Colorado's Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper speaking with Ryan Warner. We hear from the governor regularly at the state capitol. Up next, a chat with the first female editor of the Denver Post. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. For the first time in the Denver Post's 124-year history, a woman has been named editor. Longtime Denverite and journalist Leanne Colasiopo comes to the helm as her newsroom is shrinking and the newspaper industry is struggling. Leanne, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. You became editor at The Post just as a new round of employee buyouts are underway. The the newsroom staff may be reduced to a third of what it was at its peak. How are you going to keep good reporters and stories flowing in this climate? Well, I don't think there's a newspaper in America that isn't struggling with um, numbers coming down and making different decisions about what they're covering, um, how they're covering it, um, what they're going to let go, what they're going to really focus on. And we're going to we're going to do that, too. We're having a lot of conversations inside the newsroom about um, what we think our core values are, what we think um, is most important to Colorado readers and what Colorado readers are telling us they think is most important and what they want to read. And we're just aligning ourselves around those two missions um, as we try to uh, continue to have impact, continue to do important journalism, chase the news, and have fun while we're at it. So does that mean a new newsroom structure to kind of meet these these new focal points? Correct. Um, the old structure where people are very siloed into different areas, I only do um, this little bit of business and I only cover this um, uh, for the city desk or this for features, we have reached a size where that just becomes very difficult. It just doesn't make you nimble enough. Mm. And nimble just has to be a big part of what we are right now. 
So um, we are going to uh, realign. We'll still keep the expertise because if you really know a lot about Denver City Hall, we certainly don't want to lose that or politics or uh, uh, the environment, lots and lots of subjects. Um, but we're just going to reorganize around this idea that there are stories that we really want to do stories that um, nobody else is doing, stories that um, affect the conversation in Colorado. Um, our story a couple weeks ago about um, the um, assassination of, um, you know, the, the head of the DOC and what we got out of the Texas Rangers out of that, that was good exclusive reporting and we don't want to lose that and we want to stay focused. But we also are going to have a team that we're going to call the NOW team um, that is very much attuned to what's breaking right now, um, what readers are telling us they're interested in at a given moment. I mean, you know, that's a big difference with the digital age is you can really keep track of what um, readers want to know at a given second. You can see it. And um, so this team is going to be positioned to, to really respond to that. So, so does that mean you're getting rid of the investigative team or are you holding on to that as well? We're going to hold on to the investigative team. It will uh, sort of fall under the broad umbrella of our enterprise team. But I, I was an investigative editor mm-hmm. um, and I worked in that field and I um, firmly believe in it. And I um, believe that when you get smaller, it's actually all the more reason to continue to have people devoted to doing investigative work. So is this type of model uh, uh, based on another news organization around the company or country rather? Um, No, Uh, this was born out of our own um, thinking about what we needed to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, My predecessor, Greg Moore, had sort of started pushing us along this kind of path and um, we took it and um, just kind of took it from there. Um, I think... I think that any newspaper around anywhere needs to be thinking about whether they should really realign in a dramatic way to address um, all the challenges they have and and continue to do what they think is important. But we're not modeling this after any um, other news organization. So becoming more nimble, it it sounds like, in in this this environment, is there concern about a loss of institutional knowledge as these buyouts go into effect and the newsroom continues to shrink? We always we always worry about it. I think when we come to the end of this, we'll have two things in place. There will certainly be veterans left. Um, that newsroom is full almost to a person with people mm-hmm. who have chosen um, over the years t- to be there. And um, a lot of people who have been there a long time want to stay, um, and, and myself included. I've, I've been there since um, 1999. I, I grew up here. Um, so uh, there will still be people who know it. Um, I'd also stress that there's a lot of value in having new people um, in your organization because they bring a fresh perspective. They're not the ones who say, oh, no, not that story again, and um, that you do when, you're, when you've been there a while, and they see it from a, they see it from a new way, tell it a, different, um, tell it a different way. And so I think we're going to end up with a really um, great mix of um, more experienced people and less experienced people. And, and what about the, the staffers? What do they think of this? Is, this seems to be a very changing situation, day by day almost in some cases. <laughs> That's true. The staffers, um, this has been the case, of course, in newspapers for some years now, and um, change. Is, is becoming our normal <laughs> to some extent. Um, the staff um, is distressed that we're getting smaller. I'm distressed that we're getting smaller. Um, nobody, nobody wants to see that. There's so much work to do, and, and there's certainly plenty um, for everybody to do and more. Um, but I think um, they're understanding that they understand that that at the end of the day, uh, newspapers are a business. Uh, they're a wonderful business. They're the best business in the world, in my mind, to be in, but they are a business. And uh, I think they, they know that. And uh, our 
themselves thinking about how can I do my job differently. They are recognizing that going to a meeting that you know is going to end up deep inside the newspaper and and that will flash through the website and nobody will ever read it, it isn't a great use of their time and. Um, to some extent, uh, these changes can be freeing for you as a reporter. You don't have to think, oh, I've got to, I got to go chase this little thing and chase that little thing and chase this other little thing. I can really sit back and think, what is the most important thing going on in healthcare right now, and what could I do um, that nobody else is doing? And same with law enforcement, and same with politics, and same with. Um, Technology and 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 um, the economy and all these um, core uh, core areas for us um, education. Um, so so we're trying to say to them, look, you can't do it all. We we understand that. So what do you want to do? What do, what should we be doing? Is there a concern that you have these two? Uh, you have the enterprise. You have the, the now type mm-hmm. of focus. That maybe these now uh, stories may have other more important stories, or stories that are just as important, kind of buried because they're not the the now. They're not the ones that are clickable. They're not the ones that are uh, people are reading at that point. So, um, that is the reason that. So, those two teams. First of all, let me say they will. There'll be some intermingling. Mm-hmm. You can't just. They're not just siloed off. Um, but uh, that's one reason why you have that enterprise team. And, and, and to get back to your question about investigations, that's why yeah. you keep that. You, it's so easy in the course of a day to just get sucked into um, this shiny object and that shiny object. And um, it's and then next thing you know, that's all you're doing. And we want to do that. We, we think that's important. It's important for our future. It's important for growing um, the number of readers coming to us. Um, but there's a core thing that newspapers do. And by creating that enterprise team, you make sure we're doing it and, um, and that you're doing it well with all the pieces and the photo and the video and the extras that um, work really well in print and work really well online. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm chatting with Leanne Colasiopo, the new editor of the Denver Post. Leanne, is there a focus on growing a national audience for the Denver Post? No. Um, we have a national audience. Naturally, it comes to us because mostly, of course, what? The Broncos, as you might imagine, um, and, and our other sports teams. And certainly Denver and Colorado generate national news. Uh, we'll get huge um, national numbers out of, um, you know, um, the Bernie Hillary yeah, um, yeah. situation was was big for us, and the um, Thunderbird crash the other day. So we'll get a lot of national audience out of that. But that's not who we're day in and day out trying to get. Um, we're much more interested in really growing our Colorado audience. Um, that's the place that we're turning our focus. Um, that's what's important to us. It's where we live. It's who the Denver Post is. It's really, frankly, what's more important to our advertisers as well. So um, we're focused there. So does it mean going directly into the metro area only then and, and leaving the, the front range behind or state of no. Colorado behind? Um, I, when I talk about local, well, well, our staff is pretty much all um, here in the in the metro area right now, um, when I talk about local, in my mind, I think Colorado. Um, we have uh, we have certainly don't have the bureaus around that we used to, but we have partnerships with newspapers around the state, and um, those have been great. Those are we have. There's this state is blessed with lots of good um, with lots of good publications. Uh, we have a reporter who is looking to move um, up into the mountains. And from there, um, that's just a, the mountains are such a core part of what we do. And it's expensive to send somebody drive up there all the time. So he's going to he's going to live up there and he'll write whatever uh, hiking and tourism and w- 
all, all the things, all the rich things that happen up in the mountains. Why, why would you want a job like this mm-hmm. at a time when some people in the industry think uh, things are dying, that newspapers are going to be gone in the next 10 to 15 years? Greg Moore said something like that when he uh, uh, left the post. He said, writer. I think he said, he talked about the print product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so uh, in, in, in my mind, when I think of newspapers, I, I'm not just necessarily so focused on the print product. I'm thinking more about the journalism that... Um, that news, newspapers do. Uh, I don't. We don't have a crystal ball to know how long we'll have a print product, but I can tell you right now, it's a really valuable part of what we do. Um, readers like it. They like to hold on to it and touch it, and um, advertisers like it for that very same reason. People can study it and understand things differently, and um, it's just a great way to present. Enterprise news in particular, um, it's a beautiful thing, and it smells good to me anyway. And uh, so I think um, my reason for for really uh, embracing this job um, is one I, as you can see, love newspapers and um, love the Denver Post above all. Um, And I really am excited to have uh, a role in figuring out what we are going to be like in 10 or 15 years. Like, I just don't want to leave that to people who don't care about it as much as I do. An online story referred to you as a, quote, lady editor uh, when your hiring was announced. You tweeted in response, quote, lady editor. Remember that (laughs) all who heard me get mad at computer today. Uh, The story in question was uh, generated by an automated news site. uh, But it raises an important point. Uh, Does that antiquated word, even if it was generated by a computer, show that journalism isn't where it needs to be in terms of diversity in the newsroom? I think um, that there remains a shortage of of um, diversity in, in newsrooms, particularly at the top. I, I meant to check this before I came in here because there was recently a study about um, – uh, it was particularly looking at women in the in top roles at newspapers, and it's it's way off. It's 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 really light. I mean, certainly lots and lots of women have run big newspapers, but um, it still remains as a whole um, not as diverse as it should be, and that includes um, race also. Um, Denver has been really blessed in that. Of course, um, we know um, that Greg was black, still is actually, and um, and uh, the managing editor at the Post is a female. Um, we just named, and um, our head of photography is female, and the head of business is female. So uh, we have, um, and the head of our digital operation is female. So um, our newsroom is actually pretty rich in that um, right now. But um, I think as an industry, we have work to do. Leanne, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Leanne Colasiopo is the Denver Post's new editor. Coming up next, he's been called a master of the banjo. We talk with Bela Fleck ahead of his appearance at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Plan to have Bela Fleck on the show, having a bit of technical issues with that, so we're going to continue. Chef Eric Skoken has put together a lot of menus in his time, but it was always kind of a slog until he became a farmer. Then he says his dishes came alive. He'd pull some fresh vegetables from the soil and get totally inspired. He has two restaurants in Boulder, Black Cat Bistro and Bee Ramble and Hare. At both, produce and animals from his farm take center stage. His cookbook is called Farm Fork Food, and it highlights ingredients that grow well in Colorado. He spoke with Ryan Warner. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. You gardened a little as a kid, I understand, but you really got into farming as an adult. Uh, what helped you get over the hump as a as a new gardener to the point now where you're farming 130 acres? Well, there's... Um... Uh, I like to think of gardening as a slippery slope. You know, uh, it, it really uh, it attaches itself to some people. So, you know, I started with this little garden that was uh, fifteen by twenty-five, and I grew all the little the little taste, the bits, uh, the little flowers that uh, I'd use to put on the on the dishes and Her- herbs, maybe her- herbs and uh, lettuces and and, and edible flowers, uh, and that and that's so much fun. It was rewarding, and <clears throat> and for me, I started this garden as a stress reduction. Uh, method. I would walk out of my kitchen door uh, two, three steps into the garden every morning with my cup of coffee and my slippers and uh, think about the restaurant uh, that I would be in, uh, the black cat that we had just opened up, and uh, and putter around in the garden. And, you know, two, three hours in the morning, and as, as most gardeners know, uh, morning gardening, sunshine, it has a, it's a great thing for clearing the head. And then little by little, I would add a new thing in. Uh, and I have to say that I've cooked for 23 years, but I've only farmed for seven. So I don't know a lot. Uh, Everything that I've known, I've picked up bit by bit, Uh, you know, one new crop and then a different variety of this and a different variety of that. And now fast forward uh, seven years later, it's 130 acres, 250 varieties of of vegetables, and uh, but always new experiments. And you raise a lot of uh, livestock as well, is that right? Yeah, we have a big livestock livestock operation that my uh, wife Jill manages. Uh, she has her staff, uh, but we really try not to separate the livestock from the vegetable uh, part of the operation. We do it really how it was done maybe 100 years ago uh, or longer. Uh, There'll be animals on a field for one year, and then the following year there'll be vegetables, uh, you know, following behind. We really try to integrate everything and integrate the operation into the restaurant. You know, at the end of the the year, we like to have no waste. So uh, we try to Uh, set the number of animals to what we actually need in the restaurant. So tell me this, um, the cookbook, it's called Farm Fork Food, and it's from Eric Skoken. Uh, Is it for people who grow their own food? Well, it's for people who enjoy food. I mean, certainly if you're a gardener, if one's a gardener or even a a small farmer, I think there are a lot of uh, really great things to take away. Um, But but ultimately, it's uh, the the inspiration for the book came from the conversations that I have at at our farmers market. So every Saturday, Jill and I sell uh, the produce that we grow at our Boulder far- farmers market, and these inspiring conversations that we've had for years now, uh, cooking tips, um, recipe ideas, uh, gardening tips, this variety versus that variety of carrot or whatever it is. Uh, those are all things I've, I've loved over the years sharing with all of our guests at the farmer's market. And I, I really wanted to bring all of those ideas together into the cookbook. What was the question you faced most often? You thought, I've got to write this in the book. 
Oh, Everyone yeah. asks it. Uh, uh, what do I do with this new green? So uh, keep in mind that unlike a normal uh, regular farm, uh, we're a farm that's uh, centered around a fancy restaurant, the Black Cat Bistro. And uh, so I like growing lots of the things that people haven't seen before, whether it's cardoons at one end or tatsoi or uh, interesting other interesting Asian greens. We're always confronting the guests at the farmer's market with something new that they've never – maybe they've read about, but they've never actually seen before uh, – and, and, of course, I have to be prepared to give recipe ideas for, you know, this green versus that one. Yeah. Well, my inclination would be, uh, well, make a salad. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Sure. And, and salads are great. Uh, and then I could follow that up with, hey, here's a really quick vinaigrette, which is not just great in this salad, but in other ones. And it's done a little differently than you might see. And it really lets the uh, the flavor of the green that you're uh, make uh, using in this salad, it r- makes it really come through in a in a much better way. Uh, so the recipes in this book use some very specific varieties of produce, as you've noted. Um, there's is it kabocha, kabocha squash, kabocha squash. Yes, yes. three root grex beets. Yes, yeah. doesn't everyone have three root grex beets? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> of course they don't. So do you imagine that home cooks will scour farmers' markets to find these, substitute them with their favorite beet? What? Well, hopefully both. Um, walking through the farmers' market is inspiring. You know, we all we all feel inspired when we walk through the market. And it's unpredictable. Uh, and, and it is. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the joy in uh, cooking and gardening in the front range. Uh, our seasons are a little different than everyone else's. And the things that we see that are really successful here – um, are a little bit different than you might otherwise see in maybe Atlanta, Georgia, or in New York, or, or wherever. Um, people who are willing to take the leap at the farmer's market and let their inspiration guide them uh, into uh, getting this arugula or that Asian green or whatever it is, um, the book is for those people. Yeah, so it's it, a companion in a way to it, the, indeed, the indeed, adventure of uh, touring a farmer's market here. Sure, or it's a nuts and bolts manual Uh, in between the inspiration and success on the dinner table. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Boulder chef Eric Skokin is with us. His new book is called Farm Fork Food, a year of spectacular recipes inspired by his black cat farm. Tell us about the pumpkin soup with duck confit. So the... um one of the things about the cookbook is that it follows the season. So the pumpkin soup combines uh, a couple of uh, ideas um, that I'm able to uh, have the space to talk about in the book. The first is um, how does one make a pureed soup, whether it's pumpkin or otherwise? So if you deconstruct the recipe a little bit, there's a, a method for using basically all types of pumpkin to make that soup. But you could also substitute something else. Maybe it's leeks or red peppers or something else and have an equally delicious soup. Um, so that's an, that's an interesting idea that I, I'm able to talk about in the book. Uh, and then the second is to go a little bit deeper and talk about the varieties of pumpkin that yield a better soup. Ah, so, for example, yes, I'd like an answer on this one. Right, uh, all pumpkins are divided into, or winter squashes. Uh, there's no biolog- no uh, botanical difference between the two. Um, they're they fall into one of three uh, types: uh, pepos, maximas, and moschardas. And the maxima group, uh, kabocha, blue hubbard, uh, and all of the other ones in that group yield the best soups. Huh, and that is because? The, the flesh is drier, it's denser, 
It's maybe two or three pumpkins worth of flavor compressed into one, and they're infinitely better in making soup than others. So is the traditional orange pumpkin in that category? No, it's no. not. Okay. No, that's a mustarda. So um, one could use that pumpkin if you roast it, uh, reducing some of the excess water that's in the pumpkin down a little bit. Uh, but you can also jump straight in, uh, buy a kabocha or a red curry squash. That's another one of those varieties. Uh, and it always yields it just a delicious, delicious soup. We've talked uh, a good amount about produce. You trained at vegetarian restaurants, I understand. But this, right. this cookbook has a lot of meat, including some unexpected cuts of meat. Beef tongue, for example. Sure. Yeah. So um, uh, beef tongue um, at first thought uh, might not be the most appealing, but it is a luxurious meat when it's cooked. So uh, there's a relationship between the activity that a muscle has uh, and how uh, tender it is after it's been cooked. And tongue, obviously, uh, is a well-used muscle. So after long, slow braising, it makes the most wonderful uh, soft, delicious uh, uh, braised dish, whether you follow the recipe in the recipes in the book uh, or go out on your own. It's, it is a, an A-plus choice for a braised, for a pot roast type dish. So, but it's a time commitment, Tom. Uh, it is. Or is it a set it and forget it kind of food? Ah, that's a great phrase. Uh, set it and forget <laughs> it. I, that uh, that is uh, uh, tongue falls squarely into the set it and forget it, it. Uh, type. On our website, um, we have your recipe for turkey poached in buttermilk. Delicious, delicious. How did, the, how did this come to you? Well, um, the, the idea came from um, uh, raising wild turkeys uh, in in our one of our first years of raising animals, and wild turkeys are. Uh, challenging to grow. They're wily. Uh, they tend to want to escape. Yeah. Uh, and we tend to get a call from the sheriff every once in a while saying the turkeys have gotten out. <laughs> so there's that. Um, uh, but they're also challenging in the kitchen. Uh, the the meat is a little drier. It's a little denser. And the window of delicious moistness is is pretty narrow. You have to hit it right on. So I, I thought of this idea of setting the temperature of the buttermilk that we've infused with spices. It's red and it's beautiful. It smells wonderful as a poaching liquid. Uh, and then uh, poaching the turkey in that. Um, and you can dial in the temperature of a broth um, to an exact number. So we did, did some experimentation and we were able to hit it just right so that the it turns out perfectly moist every single time. And we know there's nothing worse than dry, dry turkey. Indeed. So the moisture is critical. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Boulder's Eric Skoken is the author of the cookbook Farm Fork Food. When we come back, Bela Fleck joins us from Albany, New York. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Bela Flack is widely credited as a genre-defying master of the banjo. He's crossed over into classical, jazz, rock, and he's back on the road with perhaps his best-known band, the Flecktones. This is Big Country... 
Bela Fleck, and the Fleck Tone sound has been dubbed Blue Bop, a fusion of bluegrass and jazz. The reunion tour culminates in Colorado next week at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. Bela, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Can you hear me? I can. That's good news. Well, it's been four years since the Flectones went a hiatus, and I understand that the Telluride Bluegrass Festival actually had something to do with the band getting back together. So what happened? Well, you know, I've been playing Telluride ever since uh, 1982 with Newgrass Revival. That was my first year, and in the last few decades or decade or so, I've, I've been doing a lot of different things there every year. And this year, I didn't really have anything planned. I had no idea what to do. I played there last year with with my wife, Abigail Washburn. Hmm. And uh, so anyway, Craig got in touch and said, hey, what about a Flectones reunion? And I said, well, you know, it's funny. We were talking about doing one in 2017, but we just couldn't get it together. <clears throat> and typically, the Flectones, when we get together, we don't just get together and do a few shows. We get together and make a new record and play for a year. And just right now, that's hard for everybody to commit to. And so when he said, "Hey, what about Telluride?" I thought, "Well, you know, it's, it's everybody's favorite show that we always, they, everyone always looked forward to it so much. I'll just ask them if they want to get together for a couple of weeks and go to Telluride, work our way out to Telluride." Everybody said yes, and here we are. And so that that call was from Craig Ferguson, who runs the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. That's right. The first performance of the Flectones was in 1988 for the PBS Lonesome Pine series. And I read that a thunderstorm actually caused the electricity to go out for hours during rehearsal. Can you take me back to that day? Yeah, it was really bizarre. Um, this one block that I lived on, a thunderstorm hit, and the, my block, um, the electricity went off. You know, mm. if we look we look across the street, everybody else had electricity. But that was the one uh, time we had to rehearse. Howard Levy had come down from Chicago to meet Future Man, who played at electronic drums, and meet Victor Wooten, who's this incredible electric bass player. Now, of course, we had no electricity, so you couldn't hear either of them. So we sat around, and Future Man played with pencils on some paper, and Victor was playing on the the, the bottom four strings of a six-string guitar at my Martin. It, we weren't getting anywhere, so we just decided to go on up to Louisville, where the taping was, and we really met on stage at Soundcheck, musically. And, and did you all get a sense that there was musical chemistry, chemistry right away when, when, you, when you started playing with each other? Well, the Soundcheck was so quick. Um, we just kind of got set up and, and, and ran down the songs real quick and got off. We didn't have time to sort of celebrate anything. But then when we got on stage for the actual show, uh, the show started with me playing with a string quartet and then doing some, some stuff with a sampler that I was excited about at the time. It seemed pretty cutting edge, and now it seems kind of silly. But uh, then we got out and did five songs, and the place went bazonkers pretty much from the first moment. We were all sort of like in shock. And so there was the joy of playing together, which was really there from the, from the very beginning, but also the surprise that it really connected with people. And that was Victor Wooten, bass guitar, a future man who was Roy Wooten. That's his brother on percussion, Jeff Coffin, saxophone, and, and Howard Levy on harmonica. Well, uh, Jeff didn't join until quite a while later. So I see. Howard Levy was the original fourth member. Got it. And some five, six years later... Uh, after he'd been gone for a couple of years, Jeff joined the band. And then, now recently, he uh, for the last quite a while, he's been with Dave Matthews' band, which kind of created a vacancy once again that Howard could come back. So what's it like to be back on the road after four years apart as a band? Well, it's kind of surreal, especially since it happened so fast and unexpectedly. And for those past four years, I haven't played 
I haven't done any music with with a big band except some you know some bluegrass and uh, most things I've been doing are small groups like with with my wife Abigail or do the duet with Chick Corea um, and and a lot of orchestra stuff so it's pretty crazy to be uh, in a big uh, hey the Flectones are a bit of a rock band and we have a a lot of power coming off of the stage and then with all of these crazy virtuosos so it's surreal and in the beginning it felt very strange and sort of I was looking down at my hands watching them do their thing <laughs> and feeling very disconnected from it but amazed that it was all happening somehow and and now uh six shows in it's just like we're just flying it's just so much fun and in a, in a weird way it feels like we're better than we ever were that the, like the break and the freshness and the excitement of knowing that it's a short trip um we got to we got to play at our best every moment it's just happening it's just happening well, now you've worked on a variety of projects in various genres, from playing alongside your wife, banjoist and singer Abigail Washburn, to sharing a stage with the Dave Matthews Band, to working with and even composing for orchestras. This is your second concerto we're hearing with the Colorado Symphony uh, that they co-commissioned, and you performed it with them earlier this year. Uh, the banjo, it seems, isn't traditionally an instrument associated with classical music, but you say you have a fun time working in that genre. Why the interest? I guess I, I like to put the banjo into settings that it's not expected to be in, and I get a lot of pleasure out of, of trying to figure out how to do that. And I think when you're looking for challenges, um, like improvising is one challenge, um, but composing is another one. And um, for many years, I wrote tunes, you know, where I'd write a song and I'd just show it to a band and together we would figure out how it went. But with an orchestra, you write every single note, every detail, and it's just a great challenge as a musician to, uh, to explore that reality. And CPR Classical is going to broadcast that April performance of your second banjo concerto next Thursday. Uh, creating bluegrass music on an instrument you're familiar with is one thing, but but how do you go about composing a concerto for a full orchestra? I mean, many instruments that you may not have previously played. Well, I'm taking advantage of, of the modern software where you can, you can work on the music, you can, you can create a template for a whole orchestra where every staff line uh, for every instrument is there, and, and you can put the notes in there with a mouse and, and move them around until you get the notes you want on the oboe and then move them around to the violin. And it's very painstaking for me because I don't have the training in composition, but I bring the same um, ignorance uh, to it that I, that I bring to everything else I do. I just kind of bring my um, sort of natural musical point of view to it and, and um, hopefully come up with something that, if it works for me, that that's the best I can do, you know, and then yeah. I hope people like it. And generally they do. Um, but I think I'd, I tend to think outside the box because I'm not really in any particular box, and I, I find a way to, to do it that works from my point of view. And you've also collaborated with jazz musician Chick Corea. Yeah, that's a trip. And of course, uh, we're hearing Chick, he's, and you, he's considered a great improviser. How did working with a musician such as him change the way you played? Well, when you play with a musician like that, you have to be responding constantly in real time, and you have to uh, let your unconscious take over. And the more you do that, I mean, jazz musicians always talk about learning on the bandstand, and I never really knew what they meant until I spent a lot of time playing with Chick and also jazz pianist uh, Marcus Roberts. Um, these guys play different every night, completely different. Not, not as different as I do <laughs> normally, but I have to, because if they're going to play different, I have to play different. 
and you just get in the flow of, uh, of relaxing and trusting your unconscious to supply ideas and hoping that your technique will hold up when you, t- when you attempt to, 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 to try these things out on the spot. And if, if you're lucky and you do it enough, you can get into a, a, a flow where you're not trying to finish anything. You're just on a journey. You're going forward. Just keep going forward. Keep Don't going look forward. Back. Like, like, like walking on a tall bil- at the top of a tall building or, 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 or climbing a, t- a super tall ladder or, or a tightrope. You don't look backward and don't think about what you, where you are and keep going. Bela, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you. 16-time Grammy Award-winning banjo player Bela Fleck. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.